LinkedIn News. Hey, I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This is Working, the podcast, where my colleague Nina Melendez and I discuss a conversation I had on my video series, This is Working. Nina and I take that conversation, we dissect it, and we extract our top takeaways for you, the listener. Today, we are talking about trusting a manager to have your best interest at heart. We are discussing whether senior leaders need to be subject matter experts. And finally, we'll talk about finding your unique value proposition. We're going to kick it off in just a minute. Stick around. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Here's Nina now. Hey, Nina. Hey, Dan. What's the longest you've stayed in a job? Oh, my God. This is it. This is the job I'm in now. So I'm going on 13 years here. Wow. But I went, I was at eight years at Fortune, if I remember that right, but not contiguously. Is that right? Is that yeah. the, the word for? You went back and I then went you back, came, exactly. Okay. And that felt like a long time. There was a big chunk of my life where I was changing jobs almost every 18 months to the point where my, like people were making fun of me, like, we can't keep up with your email address. But I was like, I, I was out looking for the right place. But that's what people do nowadays, you know? Yeah, it's true. They, yeah. Why? How, what's the longest you've been in a job? Five years. And I remember when I hit my five years, I was at Bloomberg. People were like, you know, this is abnormally long these days to be at a place for that long. Yeah. And I did not. I was like, really? I feel like I'm just just got here. You know, I went through a period where I was very nervous about how long I was staying at companies. Hmm. I was like, oh, my God, this is all I'm going to be known as is the fortune guy. Hmm. And so I've got to change. When you were changing jobs or looking for new jobs, did you visualize your resume? Always. Always need to. Because <laughs> yes. I was always like, what are the brands or the companies totally. that will make me more marketable? And somehow feeling like if I was at one place for too long, not make me marketable. That was always my fear also. I've given up on that fear. I yes. am now convinced that it doesn't matter. And I'm even more convinced after talking to our guest today. Joaquin Duato is the CEO of Johnson Johnson. He's been there for 34 years. Yeah, he was appointed CEO in 2022, so he's just two years into his time as CEO. But he has been at J&J so long, but in so many different jobs. And we're going to really get into that here. He had 12 different roles at J&J, not all of them, by the way, climbing the ladder. Some of those were lateral moves. And one interesting thing is that he applied to J&J when he first got into work, and he was turned down. Yeah. So not only has he been at this company 34 years, but he was rejected by the company at the beginning. And maybe it's his way of proving it to them. Like, yeah. they made a mistake. I'm yeah. going to stick around forever. Yeah. I cannot imagine staying at a place 34 years. But part of how that happened with Joaquin was that he said yes to every opportunity that came his way within the company, even if it meant changing countries. Let's Let's listen to what he had to say about that. These go both ways, and that's important. It goes the company making sure that they are putting a number of opportunities in front of you for which you can apply. And the second one is that you have to be willing to take these opportunities. Mm -hmm. I always tell people, tell me one advice on your career. My advice, I never said no to any opportunity that the company put in front of me. A manager comes to you and says, this is great for you. Your answer is yes. My answer is yes. You know, why is that? Why did I say yes? Because I trusted the company. I trusted my manager. 
And based on that trust, which I think is fundamental for you to stay in a company that long, that you trust the company, then I always said yes. Sometimes I said yes to things that I thought were not the ones I wanted or I thought they were not taking me into the direction I had planned myself. But every single time it did open a window that I was not thinking about because you don't know what you don't know. And it opened a set of opportunities that I never would have imagined. You know, when Joaquin said this, I almost thought I'd heard it wrong. I mean, this idea of just saying yes to everything the company comes to you with seemed almost crazy to me. In today's day and age, where we are expected to guide our own careers, the idea of believing that a company has your interests always in mind is just totally foreign. It's a wild, it was a wild concept. It reminded me a lot of Kristalina Georgieva, the head of the IMF. Yeah. And she, in my conversation with her, um, had said that she got a midnight or like 2 a.m. phone call yeah. from the prime minister of Bulgaria saying that he had this dream job for her. And she said yes right away. Mm-hmm. But the difference there was that she wanted that job. In this case, Joaquin is just being like, yeah, whatever you got for me, I'm in. I mean, it's like the ultimate yes and improver. I'm mm-hmm. going wherever <laughs> the company is taking me. Yeah. So that's a very different way of thinking about how to manage your career. Yeah, it's very much not having any plan in place other than just doing well where they put you. Is that a takeaway that anyone can have at any other company? Or do you think that is just unique to life at this one company? I think it really depends on if you have a certain goal in mind. And it sounds like Joaquin didn't. If I didn't have a certain goal in mind for what I wanted in my career, if someone came and said, hey, do you want to do this? I'd probably be like, yeah, why not? Because everything can be a learning experience. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah. So we've talked a lot in the show about finding your true north and making sure that you're kind of following your the areas that excite you. But one of the side notes of that or one of the kind of downsides that keep coming up is what if I don't know what my true north is? Right. And what you're saying is if you don't know what your true north is, this a company like this. Yeah. It's great. Op- it's great. Yeah. You're going to try so many things that you're going to find what it is that you love doing or what you're good at or where your passion is. Yeah. He talks a lot about trusting the company. So he trusted that maybe not that they had his best interest in mind per se, but that they knew he would do a good job. So maybe it was he trusted that they weren't going to put him in a position where he was going to fail. Yeah. How can managers then strike the balance between the company or the organization's interest and their direct report's best interest? Because those two don't always align. I think that the way the managers do this is by over time showing consistency in how they help other people's careers. So this is a little bit of a chicken and egg, but I think you have to show that you have helped other people climb the ladder or end up in really good places off your team, on your team, and that you consistently have the backs of people who work for you. It only comes by consistently showing that you are not, you're not transactional in how you manage people. Mm-hmm. If you are working in a company and the company says, we need to build some division and you don't believe in that division, and now as a manager, I've got to go tell my employees, like, oh, I really think you should go do this. I could tell you as a manager, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it. I don't think I could do that to my team unless I firmly believed that this was the right path. So what happens if you don't believe it's the right path? Do you leave the company or do you ask your manager not to have you do that? Or I think what I would do is probably um, be really honest with my team or an employee who I needed to get onto this new team and say, 
I'm not fully bought in on this, but here are the pluses and minuses. Mm. And I think that if you were looking for, you know, like everything has pluses and minuses. Yeah. It could be like you get a chance to work one-on-one with some rising star at the company or someone who's done amazing things. And so you might say like, look, I don't know where this is going to go. I don't firmly believe in this vision, but I know that getting a chance to work with Stan is a great opportunity or could be a great opportunity. And you should consider that. Hmm. I think that's the only way that you can actually do it because you can't just say, I'm not going to put anyone on this. Right. So I guess it's just the honesty I think you got to be honest. Exactly. And maybe that's, you know, that's trust. I mean, it is trust to be like, I'm going to tell you this is this new opportunity. I'm not sure if it's great or not, but I I think you should do it. And I think if your employees trust you, they'll make great choices. And if you're honest, they will trust you. Like chicken and egg thing. I guess so. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more of my conversation with Joaquin Duato. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. So internal mobility is so important for a company. I mean, it saves the company money. Um, it helps with morale. And yet it's so hard to do. I think a lot of employees will feel typecast in a role or sometimes they're just so good in their role that they can't really move around because they're they're indispensable in their role. How do you think employees can get around that? And also, how can managers keep that from happening to their employees? Yeah, I think that it becomes, think at a company, first of all, you have to try to create a marketplace where internal mobility can happen. Mm. So that means making sure that roles are showcased internally, that people know that there's things they can apply for. And then you as an employee, a lot of it is on you to try to break out of whatever this area that you've become an expert in has kind of hemmed you in. Mm. Now, I do think that as a manager myself, if someone came to me and they said, look, I am a subject matter expert in X, but I really want to move into your area of Y, I think if I knew that they had become an expert in one particular area, that gives me confidence they can become an expert in a different area. Yeah. I love this idea of someone being great at one thing and I think that does mean that you can become great at something else. We talked to James Daunt recently. He's the CEO of Barnes & Noble. His head of PR was his former uh, Executive assistant, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
And she was apparently great at that. And she was so great at that that he was like, you can do this other thing, too. So I think people can break out, but it's on the company and it's on the employee to be able to show that. You know, it's funny. This is exactly what I wanted to understand from Joaquin is when you change jobs and you do become this expert in this new area. Yeah. And then you change again, like that idea of if you're an expert in one thing and then you move into something else, like that imposter syndrome must be very real. Yeah. And I wanted to understand from Joaquin how he dealt with imposter syndrome in these 12 different roles he took on. Yeah. Spoiler alert. He says he has never once felt imposter syndrome, but let's listen to what he had to say. My role is more making sure that people have the right priorities, that we have the right teams, and that we have the right deliverables. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not so fundamental that I'm a subject matter expert. Also, it doesn't hurt. You need subject matter experts, but when you are a CEO or a leader of a big division, you are never going to be a subject matter expert. We have, you know, hundreds of products at Johnson & Johnson. We operate in multiple areas of activity. So what you are adding to the team is you you create the right vision, you create the right teams, and you create the right set of priorities, and that's your job. I sometimes, I feel so honored and I feel very uh, fortunate of uh, being able to be the CEO of a company like Johnson & Johnson and represent uh, the 135,000 employees that we have around the world. So that is a deep honor that I need to do the best I can in order to be able to represent the people that I know are doing their best every day. So that's an honor I feel very deeply. So I feel a a strong connection with the mission of Johnson & Johnson and with the purpose of Johnson & Johnson, very much so. Uh, I think that people working in healthcare, all of them have a strong sense of the impact that the medicines and medical technologies can have in real patients. So that sense of purpose and sense of mission is very important in what I do. We have a set of principles which everybody can identify, but I don't feel a sense of imposter. I think, you know, I mean, during 40 years, I have tried to do my best in doing multiple jobs at Johnson & Johnson. I have tested myself in multiple opportunities, so I don't have that. I just feel a big sense of responsibility to be able to be at the level that is deserved by the people I'm working for. Dan, how much of an expert do you think a senior leader needs to be? So if you're, or yeah, a senior leader, a manager, how much should the manager know about the work that the people they are managing are doing? I don't think you have to be the subject matter expert, but you can't be asking dumb questions six months into your time as the leader. You can't be asking people what is it that they do or how they do it or what do certain terms mean. Like, you have to have a grasp on that part of the business. This reminds me of, I read this book about Yahoo, and there are many different CEOs that came in up to Marissa Mayer. And one of the CEOs was so, so green when it came to email, but he would have his assistant print out his emails, and that's how he would read them. Because effectively, he was like, I don't do emails. (laughs) And part of the author of the book was saying is it's not just that he didn't have great ideas on how to make Yahoo better, it's that he didn't know enough to say no to bad ideas. Yeah. I really totally agree with this idea that you have to be able to have a good uh, BS detector. Right. And I think if you are not enough of an expert, you aren't able to actually suss out when someone is telling you that things are going to cost too much or are going to be too easy to do or why you can't do things or why you should do things. Like You have to have some kind of way to be able to say, 
I think that you are wrong on this. And I think also for people, for your direct reports, they're going to respect you so much more if they know that you're, you have at least some sort of knowledge. Totally. And that's why, as Joaquin said, like the CEO's role in this case, although I think this is true of any senior leader, is prioritizing and deliverables. So you have to know enough to be able to know what to prioritize, mm-hmm. what to tell people to work on and what to tell people not to work on. Mm-hmm. And then you have to be able to tell people when you expect to be able to see results. Mm-hmm. So if you can do that and people trust you, then you've hit that kind of sweet spot of knowing enough to be able to drive change. Yeah. Joaquin is the first foreign-born CEO of Johnson & Johnson. And I really thought we were going to get into this idea of what growing up outside the U.S. has done for him in terms of leadership. But when I asked him the question, Joaquin instead went into what being part of a large family did for him as a leader. So let's listen to what he had to say. In my upbringing, you know, there's one thing that, that I always have carried forward is that I was one of a very large family. I had like 18 aunts and uncles. I had, uh, you know, more than 30 cousins and I was in the middle. So... You know, if I wanted to be heard, I had to raise my voice. And I realized very early on that I was not the most important person in the room, right? So not being the most important person in the room is something that I carried forward and I bring into my job as CEO, understanding that I work on behalf of others and that the important thing are others and not me. I have an important role representing the companies I told you that I respect very much, but I realized that I work on behalf of others. So I have brought that into my job as CEO. The other element is that uh, having worked and lived in different countries gives me the opportunity to be more adjustable and flexible, and if you want, being more global. So I think that when I travel and we, I go to different countries, people have an easier opportunity to identify with me than they may have otherwise. And oftentimes, as I told you before, when I am having a town hall, I don't know, in Malaysia, I tell people, look, you know, if I made it into CEO of Johnson & Johnson, maybe some of you could eventually become the CEO of Johnson & Johnson. So I represent a sense of opportunity that a company brings that makes me relate easier with people, especially outside of the U.S. Do you think it's part of a manager's role to help their people develop their own unique value proposition? Or do you think that's something that the employee has to cultivate and come to the table with? I mean, I just can't imagine having the time to be able to figure out every employee's unique value proposition. It would be, I think, a dream to be able to spend that time. But I think that that's the role of a mentor within a company. It's the role Mm. of maybe an executive coach. Mm -hmm. But I think as a manager, you got to hope that your employees bring to you what it is that is their unique selling point. Yeah. And I think actually it's a, a big part of working at any company that a lot of us forget about is that you kind of do have to sell yourself all the time. Yeah. You have to remind people no one is out there watching what you're doing. Yeah. In fact, I remember when I was at a, a job one time, I was I loved not ever telling people what I was doing. Hmm. I really loved my independence. I was like, I'm going to do amazing things. And then my bosses are going to just notice when I deliver this. Hmm. And I'm not going to give them any updates until then. Yeah, they loved that. They love it. Now <laughs> I'm, as a manager, I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? That was crazy. Uh-huh. And then when I started at LinkedIn, my brother called me out on it. And he was like, you actually have to start giving progress reports. Like no one is going to care. Now that you're actually in the corporate, it's different. You're not in a newsroom anymore. You actually now have to make sure people realize what it is that you're good at. 
Joaquin, you know, talks about this idea of that he was, what, what's his line? If I want to be heard, I had to raise my voice. And I realized very early on, I was not the most important person in the room. That idea of learning, you have to raise your voice, that there are other people who are talking and no one is going to pay attention yeah. to you. That, I think, is such a great takeaway for yeah. anyone trying to figure out two things. One is how to guide your own career. And the two is a manager. Remember that there are all these people around and you kind of you should encourage them to make sure their voices get heard. Yeah, I love that he was able to take this thing that is not directly related to his job or his career and, yes, make it his value prop. What would you say is yours, Dan? You know, I think that I've always was sort of an outsider mm. growing up. Mm -hmm. And I really the way that I grew up, I think growing up Jewish in Kentucky mm -hmm. and also being in a family where sort of finance mattered a lot and not totally getting how any of that worked. I always felt like an outsider with mm -hmm. my friends and I felt like an outsider sort of in my family. Mm -hmm. But I loved being around all these people all the time. And that sort of idea of of learning how to listen and have an enthusiasm mm. for what people were talking about and trying to figure out how they were doing what they were doing. Mm. All of that I can sort of see in myself today. What about for you? Um, for me, I would say probably moving around a lot. It forced me to be able to relate to people that I have nothing in common with, learn to communicate with people like, you know, that whose language I didn't speak as a kid. And so I think what I bring to then my professional life is that when I'm sitting at tables with people I have nothing in common with, it's just like part of, it's like, oh, I remember this. This is like when I had to sit down with Pierre in France, who I had nothing in common with, but we became friends. You just learn how to basically interact in any situation. Totally. And with any kind of person. I did my uh, senior thesis, uh, my, my documentary thesis for grad school on guns in churches in Kentucky, in oh, Louisville. How about that? Yeah. And as someone, you know, Puerto Rican, Sri Lankan has pretty liberal views on guns. And I went and I spoke to these people who are very pro-gun, very pro-bringing their guns into churches. And I somehow was able to sit down with the pastor who had the open carry day at his church and just like sit down and completely meet him eye to eye about, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, totally. and I don't think that I would necessarily have been able to have that sort of ease had I not grown up doing that a ton. And there's no way your mom thought that she was developing that in you as no you way. moved around the world. No way. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. The way that we grew up can have a massive impact, obviously, in the way that we work and it can either be beneficial or it can harm you. But Joaquin took this giant family where he had to shout to be heard and use it to his advantage to now become CEO of Johnson & Johnson. I think it's a great opportunity for people to have a moment to look at what they might see as a negative yeah. and how they can turn that into positive at work. I totally agree. Actually, this is a great conversation I'd love to have with listeners. How do you use any part of your upbringing now in your work to make you better at what you do? Let us know on LinkedIn using the hashtag ThisIsWorking. You might hear your contribution on an upcoming episode. Please share this podcast episode with a friend and review it. It helps new listeners find us. If you'd like to hear the full conversation between Dan and Joaquin, check the show notes. We'll link to it there. This Is Working is a LinkedIn editorial production. Our production team includes Sarah Storm, Stephen Valdivia, Asaf Gidron, Taisha Henry, Andres Cordona, and Lilia Briggs. Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Our head of original programming is Courtney Coop. I'm Nina Melendez, senior producer. And I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. 
Be well and stay curious.